December 5th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Lou Reichardt, who is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Physiology at UCSF and who has, I guess, recently gone bicoastal by being named Director of the Simons Foundation Autism Research Initiative in New York. Right. That's right. Okay. Um, he uh, was a Howard Hughes investigator for more than 20 years and a founding member of the journal Neuron, which are just two randomly chosen distinctions of many, I guess. His research in the most general terms concerns the extracellular factors that affect neuronal development and CNS structure. He's done defining work on cell adhesion molecules and neurotrophins in development and has characterized many of the intracellular signaling pathways that mediate the effects of these proteins. Hi, Lou. Hello. I'm not going to mention mountaineering, even though I'm itching to, but we're not going to talk about that today. Today is all about neuroscience. Um, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Gerard Bodwin. Hello. Uh, and you're just going to have to pronounce that for me one more time. Bodwin? Yeah. Bodwin. Okay. And we've got Gary... French pronounce it. And then we've got Gary Galvo. Hello. Hey, Gary. And we've got Annie Lynn. I think this Hello. might be... Hi. This might be your first time with us. Welcome. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So um, so in the 70s and 80s, you were one of the pioneers in integrating uh, monoclonal and polyclonal antibodies and knockout mice into neuroscience research. That is that right? First of all, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, it seems like, to me, a great illustration of how a creative blend of tools can um, define a field and really change the pace of research. So I'm... I'm, I always love the oral history of these things, so I'm really hoping uh, that you could tell us some of your recollections of that period and the currents that were driving your thinking at the time and how your predictions um, about the utility of these tools compare with, the, with your perspective on the field now. Well, let me start out. I got my degree in biochemistry working on a bacteriophage lambda and how you control the lytic lysogenic decision through repressor and, and crow and went into neuroscience and one of the interesting things was uh, I discovered that <clears throat> at the time I went to Harvard that even though neuroscience was a wide open field that like the state of Nevada there were very few watering holes <laughs> and so that <clears throat> there were a lot of people that worked on myelin because there was a lot of it many people worked on catecholamines because you could stain the brain with falkillarp and uh, a lot of people actually worked on the acetylcholine receptor because they have these wonderful snake toxins that let you purify it. But very, very concentrated efforts and stuff. And so what has changed in the field in monoclonal antibodies and molecular biology uh, were really instrumental with this is the number of problems you can attack has just gone up. And because it's because of these new tools. And so I think, you know, one way of viewing Neuroscience is it's the ultimate parasite. It takes tools from every other discipline and applies them to probably what we think is the most important problem of all, understanding how we think and how we <coughs> and uh, what we remember, what we forget, and so on. So, uh, you know, monoclonals, I think uh, Cesar Milstein's papers came out, I believe, in 76. And so as a new assistant professor, and I actually was originally going to go to UCSF in 76. I delayed it a year for some reasons. And and, and uh, it was an obvious thing to see whether you couldn't, couldn't identify molecules that were associated with a synapse. I mean, it was a beautiful way to take a mixture of 
proteins that you knew were not pure and pull out reagents that would select interesting subsets of them, those that are associated with synaptic vesicles, synapses, or whatever you were interested in. So um, a good way to get good reagents from dirty starting material. So can, can you, you touched upon it a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit about um, your take on the interplay between techniques and questions? So, you know, in thinking about the current emphasis on technical innovation, I'm talking about the NIH BRAIN initiative acronym. It has that brain research through advancing innovative neurotechnologies um, and this whole technical push of the Human Connectome Project. I mean, you're somebody who spent a career thinking about the structural underpinnings of the CNS. Um, and, and I guess if you were at the meeting, the SFN meeting, connectomics was all the rage. So I'm just wondering about how you see the various scales of connectomics working for answering some of the big questions and thinking about how the brain works, especially now that you're dealing with some really big questions in your role as a foundation director. Well, it's a, it's a tough question, I think partly because we don't have all the tools yet, right? I mean, what we have or we have through the combination of these sort of nanoscopes and tetrodes. I mean, you have different ways you can record from circuits of cells, either very dense circuits or more distributed circuits of cells. We have spectacular ways now of either activating or silencing cells and asking what they do to a circuit. We have real limitations and sort of are, you know, the most reasonable animal models now are, are small molecules, fish or rodents. <coughs> uh, but yet it's clear that they don't have much of a forebrain, for example. And so, you know, there are only certain questions you can ask with them. I think probably one of the most interesting technologies that's come up in the last few years has been the sort of the combinations of the tailings and the CRISPR uh, methods for which do in principle let you make mutations in primates or whatever beasts you want to actually. I mean, but, but you don't get away from the expense of this. <laughs> and, and, you know, the challenge, I mean, most of the fields in neuroscience that have worked well have been fields where people could ship reagents around easily, and it's very hard to imagine you'd ever ship primates around easily, for example, in the kinds of numbers mm -hmm. that one works with mice and stuff. But, so. <clears throat> no, no, the, I... I, what's the CRISPR? I actually don't yeah, know what CRISPR is. We sort of looked at each other wondering about that. <laughs> oh, CRISPR is, so, so it's, it's part of the, uh, it's a bacterial, antibacteriophage defense mechanism, actually. Mm -hmm. and it turns out that, so they're they sequences. <clears throat> so there's an enzyme, uh, which uh, basically a protein, uh, which is associated with an RNA, and, and you can guide the protein complex to whatever part of the eugenome you want because you can change the sequence in the RNA and, and, and then you can use this in several ways. You can use it to introduce deletions or NICs. You can use it, you can actually, if you put in an inactive enzyme, you can use, say, fuse to the transcriptional activator. You can use it to activate transcription. Mm -hmm. You can use it with a transcriptional repressor, again, by a fusion protein to repress transcription. But the point, it's, it's very, it's pretty efficient, actually. It's been done in primates. There was a, mm -hmm paper from a Japanese group on marmosets uh, sometime in the last month or so. Uh, and so you can take, for example, 30 eggs from, say, hypothetically a marmoset. You can introduce these reagents 
into 30 eggs, and you will get a reasonable number of first-generation mutant animals. And so it doesn't involve all the, the breeding and so on. <clears throat> and it's being widely used in model organisms, I should say, for directing mutations. I mean, it lets you, for example, introduce point mutations into much more efficient than homologous recombination. And skips the embryonic stem cell stage, too. <coughs> well, um, you can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering also about just taking a, a, a long and storied career in neuroscience and moving it into um, directing a foundation. If you want to say something about, about that and whether what kind of transition that actually is. No, it's a big transition. Uh, look, I, I mean, I uh, was at UCSF, I guess, for 36 years. And, uh, and you know, honestly, I expected I'd be buried there. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, I, mean the, uh, I directed the neuroscience program there for 25 years, and I directed the PIPS program there for about 13. So I'd done a lot of things at the same time. And so in some ways, I felt like, you know, at some point, you should pass the torch and let other people take on these things. And so this uh, opportunity at the Simons Foundation, it turned out in some ways I was prepared for it because I directed a Howard Hughes Med into Grad program, which is basically aimed at increasing the medical literacy of graduate students. So I dealt with a lot of clinical things. And so then when it came up, it's just like, you know, Mount Everest, you either do it or you don't. I mean, the, the, I mean it was clear it's, it's a really important problem. It affects a lot of families, not just the kids, but all the, but the parents and the rest of the kids in the family. Uh, it's something sort of mind-bendingly different, actually. And so it's really nice at some point in your life to just do something different. And which I liked a lot. And the other thing that was sort of UCSF specific, I, as I said, I felt for some time that I should be turning over these directorships of these graduate programs to other people. And this meant that I could do it and be long enough away that I wouldn't become a nasty kibitzu. So. <laughs> so as part of the job, figuring out the strategy, I mean, I don't know what, exactly what the strategy is for autism. I know like with... You know, with Huntington's disease, Annie and I both have some experience with that. The strategy was always pretty clear from the beginning. It didn't really work out the way it was planned, but at least the plan was pretty obvious. But with autism, the, it seems like the strategy is a tougher call. What's the best way to proceed? Well, I think, you know, autism is a lot of disorders, right? I mean, about a quarter of autistic kids have seizure, for example. And so this is telling you there's something seriously wrong with the brain perhaps too few inhibitory interneurons, for example, <laughs> and you can treat it, but it's clear there, uh, you know, that in a sense, autistic phenotype behavior is just a phenotype uh, where the underlying cause is more serious or a number, many kids have low IQ again, so, but there are uh, high-functioning kids. So I think there's a lot of disorders, and, and I'm not popular, but I think it's sort of like cancer. I think there may be different cures for different uh, genetics and different manifestations of the disorder. And so the, the great thing, uh, so the Simons 
foundation initiated this effort, I think about eight years ago. Uh, uh, Jim Simons is an academic and he and his wife have an autistic kid and he also s established one of the world's most successful hedge funds. So they had money and, and will to do it and, and uh, recruited Jerry Fishbach, who'd been chair of neurobiology, both at WashU and Harvard, uh, head of the NINDS, uh, dean at Columbia, to do it. And I'd say the big the thing that they committed initially was a lot of genomics, a lot of exome sequencing. They identified families that had multiple kids, some of which had the disorder, some of which didn't look for mutations. And they could, at this point, you can say you could only look with confidence at severe mutations, codon uh, you know, termination or obvious splice site mutations that, that were associated with the kids that had the disease or the phenotype, rather, shouldn't use disease. <laughs> um, so it's been very good at identifying mutations in a lot of genes, and these genes include very prominently a lot of synaptic synapse-associated proteins, for example, shank 3 some of the neuroligand, norexins, uh, but also develop, uh, chromatin genes. I mean, a number of the chromatin modifiers have come up, and exactly what that means is interesting, but it suggests, again, that very fundamental things are happening during development that are not quite normal. <coughs> the uh, So, what do we know? I mean, at this point, I think the Foundation's made a huge contribution toward just showing that there are genetics that explains a significant number of autistic cases, and that and the criteria for saying that a gene mutations associated with the disease, if you come up disorders, if you come up with it in multiple families, then it, uh, it's not by chance. I mean, but even it turns out, even with a single family, the probability is more than half that it will turn out to be real. And as you sequence more families, you <coughs> sequence uh, more. So, you know, the, the strategy, the issues in genomics for the foundation are, so we've been very successful, I think, at identifying these rare but high-impact mutations. At this point, we know relatively little, say, about the more common uh, but like perhaps weaker impact mutations, right? I, I mean, that, uh, that hasn't come up with this. We obviously, at this point, have not begun to analyze, say, promoters, enhancers, uh, you know, things that are outside the exomes. And so, you know, you know, the, the issues for the foundation are obviously how much of this do you do and when do you do it? But I think the one of the facts that it's shown us is that genetics does account for a significant fraction of autistic cases, at least as predisposing risk factors. One of the things we don't know at this point is what are the other impacts, the interactions, say, between environment, which I'd include infection, uh, also, say, premature birth, which we know is a risk for all sorts of psychiatric disorders, uh, what the real uh, what are the other things that interact with the genetics to cause phenotypes? And 
but it's it's I think it's a very long road, like spinal cord regeneration. But one of the hopeful things is at least some companies are taking an interest in this. I mean, Roche has started a small scale clinical trial for a vasopressin uh, receptor antagonist, the receptor that's expressed just in the brain. And there's some genetics that supports this, actually, uh, human genetics as well as some pretty convincing animal genetics. Uh, the we are taking an interest in a Jagar baclofen, which is a, a GABA B agonist. Uh, uh, we'll see where it goes, but we uh, it was first pursued by a company called Seaside, which is now going out of business because of lack of funds and. Mm-hmm. We're going to take over that effort in some way. And so, so there is hope. And uh, my prediction is that some of the, that these things will make a difference. I, I mean, to at least some people. And so your statement that it's a lot of diseases is based on the diversity of the genetic factors diversity, that have yeah. been discovered already. Well, also on the fact that I say significant, there are the other phenotypes, right? I mean, so you have kids that are severely mentally impaired. So they, they may have autistic features, but the primary problem may not be that they're antisocial, but they don't know how to talk, or they, you know, their mental abilities predisposed to not being very social. They're kids that have seizure. Well, seizure does a lot of terrible things to the brain, right? I mean, but this certainly me are. A, yeah. From a treatment point of view, that this, like, sorting out of the various... <coughs> phenotypes into categories or something like that is that is that feasible because well it just sounds there like were, if there's that different giving a bunch of people back with them doesn't sound to me like well i th- my, my own view is every drug trial now for this kind of disorder should be combined with genomics i mean so you should understand what the genetics right. are because i mean i think now if you look at what the roche trial is going to do the Roche trial, they're only treating adult boys 18 to 35 who have IQs above 70. And there's some other things that would keep you, no other, no obesity disorders, for example. I mean, the, I mean, I think the, I think the, the future probably is going to be to, for clinical trials at least, is to identify the right test population. So that, it sounds like that's a very specific test population. Uh, was it picked, I mean, how do they know those are the right people to, that for this particular trial? I don't know all the rationale that went into it. I mean, the reason for boys is that uh, there are four times as many boys with autism as girls. And that's, that's one of the... That's a practical method. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, the, and, and the genetics suggests that women or girls with autism have more severe genetic impairments than uh-huh. the guys. Uh, so the I, th- I think the adults was probably they've... One... It's perhaps somewhat easier to interrogate adults to find out the differences in function. And this particular trial involved, they, they're only enrolling people that have caregivers that are willing to put a lot of effort into questionnaires, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suspect they just figure the potential for harm is less with adult brains than developing brains. This would be my... But I, so, so you mentioned that uh, genomics and identifying genetic mutations is a uh, is is one source of identifying um, uh, the various phenotypes of the disease. But I I would imagine I would bet on it. There's going to be a small population where you 
people, they have autistic phenotypes, but there's no genetic mutation. I, I would imagine that that's possible. You mentioned earlier, slightly alluded to it, that many or some of the mutations uh, happen with uh, epigenetic modifiers. So do you think that there's a, a potential transgenerational effect where the parents would have a mutation of a epigenetic modifier, the kid doesn't have it, but yet they show the phenotype? It's possible. Is that is that something that uh, it's it's certainly conceivable? And I, look, I mean, we have much more different. I mean, we have a lot of. We're certainly interested in epigenetics. I don't think our ability to analyze it is nearly is, mm -hmm. is quite up to par. I mean, the other uh, you know another issue that arises with the genetics is chimerism, right? I mean, if mm -hmm. we know that we're, we've accumulated mutants, uh, mutations, or changes in our genome that our parents doesn't have, it seems like it's a fair guess to that the different cells in our body have continued to accumulate mutations. Some of these, if they happen to be in brain cells, may affect autism. And at the moment, we have no way of dealing with this. I mean, but there are a few clinical cases. I mean, I think, for example, there was a dominant, I think Chris Walsh had a paper on a, a PI3 activate, kinase activating mutation that clearly affected brain development in a very clear way. And was Since someone already mentioned epigenetic, <laughs> so well, the epigenetic modifier or the enzyme it doesn't necessarily to be mutated in order to cause the problem. As long as the activity drop, it can cause yes. the problem. So, the foundation is any uh, funding interest in those looking into the enzyme activity related to the. Autism, no? Yes. <laughs> we have big ambitions. <laughs> no, we are. This is sort of more than just an academic question. <laughs> Look, we spend $65 million on autism research every year. So mm -hmm. we spend a lot of money, actually. I mean, and we, you know, our responsibility is to make the best use of it possible. I, I mean, mm -hmm. it's a big issue to use the money as wisely as mm -hmm. possible. And so, uh, you know, well, probably 15 million of this is currently devoted toward the genetics. Uh, we sponsor a lot of basic research. Can I, can I pursue what you were talking about scientifically? So, I mean, because I didn't want to interfere with your, with the funding issue. But the, <laughs> the, um, what you were saying is that, that, is that the enzymes that control yes. epigenetic modification can just be up and down regulated or something like that. They don't have to be... Mutated. mutated, yeah. So it doesn't need to be 100% loss of function. So th this is come from the Huntington disease study. I kind of carry mm -hmm. out that. So the Huntington disease, that genes, you can see the gene overexpressed, but it's because the post-translational modification change. So that means it's epigenetic yes. level change. It's not mutation at all, which uh, connect to the enzyme activity, and enzyme itself is no mutation, it's not overexpressed, but the activity change. So it's the enzyme kinetic. And then, so I'm thinking about if that happened to Huntington disease, so you have a highly acetylation at the C-terminal amino acid, maybe this protein is, mutant protein is more stable. What if that is the similar case happened to the artisan? 
And well, something. No, no, no. I mean, I think this is a, this is an issue of biology, and <laughs> and uh, it's certainly possible. I mean, you know, one of the reasons, of course, so much progress has been made in Huntington's is there is one gene. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we're thing. dealing uh, with a lot of. I mean, we expect there'll be several hundred strong wrist genes that come mm -hmm. out of this screen at the end. These are mm -hmm. what the numbers suggest, and so. Is that supposed? Uh, talk too much? No. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking about the possible ways uh, we can get as more as uh, many as possible that autism specimen, if it's possible, then we run those uh, proteomic screening, so we can identify tons of those uh, epigenetic modification side, the difference between the normal case and autism. And would that be in every tissue? Or would it just be just possibly the, in just a particular cell? The, the, um, so in that case, it might be getting the material to do the test might be tricky, right? I mean, you can't do a brain biopsy to see if the... <laughs> Right. No, the, for proteomy, you only need a small piece of the... So brain. you are thinking about doing a brain biopsy, <laughs> just a small one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, or the blood. What? Or the blood. The blood. Well, the blood, oh, yeah. look, the blood, we, we the collect, we collect, look, we collect blood on, uh, we have uh, cell samples from every from all the Simon Simplex collection, these three thousand families, okay, and obviously one of the issues is what you do with it. Uh, the you can make iPS cells. Mm -hmm. You can uh, do a, a lot of things. Uh, one of our one of the things we've committed a million dollars a year for for at least the next five years and probably continuing is to a brain bank, uh, and so David Amaral, who's a professor at UC Davis, mm -hmm. is setting up a bunch of sites, one of which I believe, I think is in Dallas, uh, to basically collect brains, which will mainly be adult brains, of course, of people with autism. And uh, again, to preserve them in reasonable fashion in a way that they can mm -hmm. be used for proteomics and so on, and he's, <coughs> This is a collaboration with Autism Speaks, I should say, but it's got its own, uh, it's its own limited uh, liability company, basically. <laughs> and uh, the, that Amaral is the executive director of it. And there's a scientific advisory board, so people can send in requests for samples, and it gets reviewed, and if, the, you know, if it's approved, they'll release the samples. And so, so there's a way to get a brand new if you need it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, the bar sample. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about bra because it circulates through <laughs> the brain, you know, so it might reflect to something. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, well uh, so, so I say the blood, you know, people can put in requests for the uh, blood samples, and I think we're probably going to be making IPS cells at some point from at least a reasonable number. Yeah, IPS cells are still very expensive, I should say. Mm -hmm. And the yeah, others, possibilities, immortalized leukocyte lines, I think, which use Epstein Barr virus, I believe, to immortalize. Mm -hmm. are, you, just, are, are you talking about the, the, those people saying the disease in a dish? So you're going to catch your made IPS <coughs> and study the mechanism? Yeah. Well, there were two papers in Nature recently. I, I mean, so one was from um, Ricardo Dolmesh's lab, which uh, used iPS cells from, I guess, a 
couple of patients with one of the uh, deletions, the 16P11.2 deletion, mm -hmm. and they made iPS cells and they looked at effects after neural differentiation on, on synaptic potentials and found less excitatory potential, okay? And, but no effects on inhibitory neurons, at least as differentiated from these iPS cells in the dish. And then they showed that they could rescue either with putting, uh, see, I'm sorry, I think I've, no, I don't think it was 1611P, it was shank. So they could rescue with shank 3, which was what was missing, which you might expect. They also could rescue with IGF-1, and so on, like growth factor 1, uh, partially, for which there is some scientific basis for. Though it turned out the cell biology of what was happening was very bizarre. So these are all so these are all cells from people that do have one copy of shank. Okay, I mean it's it's not they have a deletion, but it's a heterozygous deletion. Mm -hmm. And it turned out the IGF one was instead of stimulating shank expression, was further reducing shank expression. And mm. so then I'd say at the point the paper became somewhat speculative in explaining this. <laughs> Uh, there's a similar paper, an article by Huda, from Hujazogbi's lab that looked at uh, a duplication of this uh, locus, and um, partly they, they identified in the Baylor databank of people that have come in for psychiatric diagnosis, a couple of people that looked like they had extra copy of shank 3 but no other gene. <coughs> Very, I mean, really almost a single gene duplication it looked like. These People had a lot of phenotypes that suggested mania, basically. And they mm -hmm. generated animal models and showed that the rodents had uh, manic behaviors, hyperactivity, and, and, and so on. And in this case, they came up with a really, it was a really interesting paper because they uh, used, they, they, transgene that they used to put it in. I mean, it was in a back. They tagged GFP to, and so they used GFP to pull out shank and all its associated proteins, and they came up, of course, with half the cell. But, they, <laughs> but uh, a couple of the proteins that caught their attention were profilin and mina, which are both proteins involved in nucleation of the actin cytoskeleton. They showed in primary culture, that there's more F-actin in these cells, and they they had seen they saw in this duplication they saw excessive excitatory transmission, mm -hmm. uh, but they also saw inhibition of inhibitory transmission. And, and what they showed was when they looked at localization, they had excitatory and inhibitory synapses in these cells as opposed to controls that there was much less mena and uh, profilin associated with the inhibitory synapses. And so the model was that shank was basically acting as a competitive sink to sequester, <coughs> so to promote excitatory synapse development and, and prevent inhibitory synapse uh, development. So, you know, these are two examples of the kinds of sort of what I call cell biology that has come out of the genetics that, it's a, but they were they were able were they able to, in sort of, after after the fact rescue these changes in synapses. I mean, right? Because an issue of all these is potentially developmental influences that may not be rectified. Right. 
Well, one of the things they showed, I'm trying to think of the name of the drug, actually. I mean, so they tried uh, their, I mean, the most common drug used to treat mania is lithium, right? Uh, <clears throat> and it turned out this was completely ineffective in the rodents. <clears throat> but then they uh, used a GABA B agonist, but it's something like baclofen, but I forget the name. Mm. And this did rescue the behavior in the rodents and uh, restored excitatory inhibitory balance in the cells. And so it suggested that in this case, what they were probably looking at was a fundamental uh, perturbation of excitatory inhibitory balance. At least it was, them, and they came up with them. They had a molecular mechanism. This is plausible part. And it suggested a very different approach to studying, uh, to approaching mania, right? It suggests one class maybe treatable right. with lithium and another with, you know, a very different set of agents. Yeah. But mania is not one of the defining hallmarks of autism necessarily. It's not the... No, 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 no. I said this was not an autism. Yeah. Oh, this is... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it, it was the same gene, but, but autism is associated with deletions of shank. This is a duplication. So it's a different disorder, but again, a psychiatric disorder. Yeah. So do we understand the microcircuitry changes in humans at all, and how the how these some of these behavioral things that are manifesting? Is there any push to sort of understand at a sort of a physical level what these brains look like, and in, in terms of imaging and? Well, there are a lot of. Uh, I mean, whole brain imaging is a big deal in autism, and there's a, for example, a PNAS paper that just came out, in, I think, in the last week or two, <coughs> looking at. Uh, Connectomics of men and women <coughs> using diffusion tensor imaging, and, and a lot of this same work is being done comparing autistic to a non-autistic people. And uh, the I think a consensus and is that autistic people uh, their brains are perhaps a little less wired, connected to different different parts of the brain, or less connected to each other, but I have to say there are also examples where it's more so. <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not an imager, so. <laughs> so is that a general view of autism? It seems like from this conversation that I've heard that it's uh, cortex-centric, forebrain-centric. Could the disease be more fundamental in the brainstem, for example? Well, uh, autistic, uh, many autistic individuals have sleep disorders, right, which I think could be associated with uh, brain stem. Interestingly, a lot of autistic uh, individuals have intestinal disorders, so this could be involved in either the enteric nervous system or the microbiome. And, you know, at the moment, all we know is that these can have quite a lot of effect, both in the adult and developing brain. I think, you know, most of the genes that are coming up in the brain, you know, things like neurexins, neuroligands, are presumably expressed in the enteric nervous system, a lot of other places. And so, yeah, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't have to be just neural, yeah. But I think the phenotypes that define autism are really sort of behavioral, so they have something to do with the brain. Yeah. <clears throat> So I guess the other end of development is degeneration, and in terms of, of looking at these autistic brains, is, is one a, sort of a window into the other? Can you can you glean anything from the way these guys age into what's going on in development? 
It's a more general question about development and degeneration, really, and these molecular markers that you use to study one and the other. Well, I think that, you know, the big issue in terms of brain, particularly from aged people, is uh, is what, how many changes you're looking at are primary versus compensatory or secondary. So there's a lot of caution when looking at brains, I, I think. But it's the best, except for imaging, it's the best tool we have. Yeah. So I want to switch gears for the last couple of minutes and just mention the fact that you you um, you were one of the um, uh, one of the folks who established the journal Neuron back in 1988, and um, Gerard thinks that you have a, a good story to tell. So I'm just going to let you have it <laughs> and tell the story. Well, I mean, you know, the uh, the history of journals then was that. Uh, Nature had started a journal, Nature New Biology, in the 1970s, which actually folded, so it wasn't very successful. But in the 80s, Ben Lewin, who was the owner and chief editor at Cell, I guess had the idea that the time might be ripe, and I think he he came he went around to a number of universities, and I know places a number of universities turned him down actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we at UCSF took him up, <laughs> and so uh, so Zach Hall and Jim Hudspeth and I were co-founders of the Journal of Neuron, and we benefited uh, a lot from from the fact that there was some gaping holes in the neuroscience journal literature. I, I think that you know it's very hard for a new journal to to beat out an old journal because uh, people want to publish in established journals. But the Journal of Physiology, which was British at this point, listed authors alphabetically and took years to publish. Uh, there was no instant online publishing then. Uh, the Journal of Neuroscience at that particular time I didn't think was particularly well run. And if you look at the and there was a real gap in molecular neurobiology. And so if you look at where the early papers came from, they came from areas that I would say were most vulnerable to the gaps. And um, I'm sure we benefited from the association of, with Lewin, I mean, and, and Self somewhat, though I, there's a famous neuroscientist who I can say was told a story I think from the early 90s, walking across a courtyard with probably the single individuals published more in cell neuroscience at UCSF than anyone else. And this guy, who was very, a very famous Swedish neuroscientist, asked this guy, this journal Cell, I see you publish a lot, and is it any good? <laughs> 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 and so, <laughs> so neurobiologists were not terribly cognizant of Cell. <laughs> and but uh, the you know Lewin gave us very good advice. He said you got to set high standards at the beginning. You'll be judged by the quality of papers at the beginning, and it's very hard to change the image of a journal. And so we tried to do that, and we got a lot of help, obviously. And it worked out. Yeah, yeah it did work out. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us, uh, Lou Riker. This has been Neuroscience Talk Shop. <laughs> <laughs>